I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today, we'll dive into the Supreme Court case, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus the city of New York. This is the first major Second Amendment case that the court has taken for some time. It focuses on a New York City gun regulation that forbade, or forbids, depending on your point of view, residents from taking their guns to second homes and shooting ranges outside of the city. Remember, dear We the People listeners, we discussed this case over the summer when the court agreed to hear it. Uh, yesterday, uh, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments, and today we will review those arguments and discuss the potential constitutional implications of the case. I'm thrilled to be joined by two of America's leading experts on the Second Amendment. Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute and an adjunct professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Uh, Clark served as co-counsel in the landmark Second Amendment case District of Columbia versus Heller, and his colleagues at the Cato Center for Constitutional Studies filed a brief in the New York case. Clark, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you. And Daryl Miller is Melvin G. Shim, professor of law at Duke and co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Uh, with Joseph Blocker, he is the author of The Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller. And with Joseph Blocker and Eric Rubin, he filed a brief in the case on behalf of neither party. Daryl, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Clark, let's jump right in. Uh, much of the oral argument before the court focused on a technical question, is the case moot? In other words, is there still live controversy for the court to decide? Uh, we want to delve into the merits of this case so listeners know what to think about it, but we do have to deal with a mootness question because the justice has devoted so much time to it. Uh, tell us about uh, the argument that the case is moot because New York says it's no longer going to enforce it and tell us whether or not you believe that the case is moot. Right, so an important question at the outset uh, in, in public interest cases is whether there is a live controversy. In other words, do the parties really have a, a live and ongoing dispute that a court could remedy? And the argument is that in this case, there is not one because the city of New York, um, after winning in the lower courts and after the U.S. Supreme Court uh, granted review in this case and said, yep, we'll, we'll take a look at those decisions, the city of New York decided to repeal the regulation that was at issue in this case. And then the state of New York even uh, piled on and said, yeah, and furthermore, you can never reenact that provision to kind of make it belt and suspenders. And so the, the city, who is the defendant in this case, takes the position this case is mute. There's nothing to fight over because the law, um, we have repealed it. It doesn't apply to anybody anymore. Uh, and there's nothing else for a court to do. That's the basic mootness arguments. Now, the plaintiffs disagree with that and claim it's still a live case. And that was really the subject of most of the discussion at the Supreme Court argument yesterday morning. Daryl, uh, the justices uh, seem to be leaning toward holding the case moot, but w what's the best argument that it's not moot, and uh, which argument are you persuaded by? Right. Well, um, uh, I am persuaded. It's The court is probably leaning towards mootness here, um, but I suppose the, the best argument or the, the argument that seems to be uh, most persuasive uh, to at least the plaintiff's uh, counsel uh, is that the uh, regulation uh, in New York State, excuse me, New York City, um, 
requires a person um, to essentially have unbroken travel with the firearm locked and unloaded in um, uh, in storage uh, from the home to another place, uh, like a shooting range or another home, uh, but that it doesn't include things for like stops for coffee breaks or you know, the oral argument talked about what if you stop at your mother's house. That was a, a statement by uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch. Um, and that uh, both under the old regulation and under the new regulation, uh, the fact that uh, there's not uh, uh, permission to, to stop for a cup of coffee uh, or at your, your mother's house uh, means that there's a live controversy. Uh, this is a pretty slender read. I, I, I really uh, doubt that there were many people that were persuaded by uh, that argument, but uh, it's probably the best one they have. One of the interesting things I'll just note here is there was some disagreement between the plaintiff's counsel and the solicitor general who argues on behalf of the United States and it came uh, out in favor of uh, the uh, plaintiffs, the uh, NYSERPA uh, in this case. There was a disagreement about whether um, the possibility of damages actually made this move with um, the solicitor general really pushing that argument uh, that there were some nominal damages perhaps available with an amended complaint. Uh, and uh, Paul Clement, who is a very skilled uh, Supreme Court advocate, arguing for the plaintiffs, uh, not really biting on that. Uh, so it was an interesting uh, tactical or strategic d- disagreement between the plaintiffs' counsel and the SG. Well, we will give we the people listeners what the people of the United States may not have, which is a discussion of the substantive merits of the case. And let's plunge right into them. Uh, Clark, uh, Paul Clement, in his very first words before the court, said that text, history, and tradition all make clear that New York's restrictive premises license and accompanying transport ban are unconstitutional. He added that New York is adopting a view of the Second Amendment as a homebound right with any ability to venture beyond the curtilage with a firearm, a matter of government grace. And he said that that is inconsistent with the history, text, and uh, tradition of the Second Amendment. Uh, do you agree or disagree and, and play, play out the argument for why you think that the New York law, if the court were to consider it on the merits, would in fact violate the Second Amendment? Well, I certainly do agree. Uh, before I get to that, let me just say one more thing about mootness. I think there isn't the slightest doubt, and I think everybody in the courtroom understood perfectly well, that if this had been, uh, let's say, an immigration case or a reproductive rights case where the government defendant was trying to strategically moot the case by essentially getting you know, lower court victories but then uh, systematically frustrating Supreme Court review by uh, you know, amending the policy, uh, I think all the justices would have been exactly on the opposite side of the, the mootest uh, argument. So I, I actually disagree. I think this case will be found to be a live controversy, and they will get to this question about text, history, and tradition um, on the merits. And I, I do agree with Paul Clement. Uh, the text of the Second Amendment uh, protects the right to keep and bear arms, uh, unless you're going to just essentially delete the text uh, and bear uh, or somehow fold it into the concept of keeping a firearm, the natural connotation of bearing a firearm means to carry it around somewhere. Um, and I think from an even more important standpoint, uh, the, the, the state, the, the, the um, attorney for the, state, for the city of New York made two very important tactical concessions during the argument that are, are certainly going to come back to haunt the, the city if this goes to the merits. Um, the first is that he conceded in, in response to a question from Justice Alito that the repeal 
of the policy at issue um, did not make anybody unsafe. And then so ergo, uh, the policy itself didn't do anything to protect the public. So substantively, uh, he more or less conceded that it doesn't protect uh, the public or make them any more safe. Um, and secondly, he acknowledged that um, the ability to be proficient with a, with a firearm is, is implicit in the Second Amendment, and that in order to be proficient with a firearm, you have to be able to train with it, you have to be able to take it to a firing range and actually use it, and that implies at least some ability uh, to, to uh, carry uh, a firearm outside the home for at least some purposes. So uh, I think that both as a matter of text, history, and tradition, but also perhaps even more importantly, uh, from the from litigation standpoint in terms of the concessions that were made uh, by the uh, lawyer for the city of New York, this is going to be a fairly easy question for the court. Daryl, uh, do you believe that the New York law, if the court were to consider it on the merits, uh, is or is not consistent with the Second Amendment? And maybe start with uh, precedent. Uh, Paul Clement said this court recognized as much in Heller by recognizing the long history of handgun possession outside the home and by recognizing the government's interest in limiting possession in sensitive places, not every place outside the home. As a matter of precedent, uh, embodied in the Heller case, uh, do you think the New York law would pass muster or not? Right. Um, so before I respond to that question, I think I, I, I'm going to take the opposite position on, on mootness. Um, um, I, I'm not sure that that's actually true, that uh, if the uh, plaintiffs, if the government gives everything that the uh, defendants want in a kind of irrevocable way uh, that uh, that the Supreme Court is in a position to rule on the constitutionality of a statute that no longer exists uh, where the plaintiff the plaintiffs get whatever they want so I think I take a different position on the mootness question uh, both descriptively in terms of uh, what uh, Clark has said, but also predictively in terms of where I think the Supreme Court would go. They would have to go to an extraordinary set of links to uh, alter uh, what is just general across-the-board rules on mootness uh, to really reach the merits in this case. On the merits, though, uh, because that's the question that you asked me, um, uh, I think it's worth mentioning um, that there was a remarkable brief in the uh, opinion uh, by uh, 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 scholars of linguistics, and these scholars of linguistics say um, that uh, the initial decision in Heller about what the mean the word "bear" means, bear arms, uh, was just wrong, uh, and uh, that uh, if you look at uh, 18th century usages of the words "bear arms" um, through big data sets of uh, 18th century documents, uh, it's almost never used in the sense that the plaintiffs want to use it now. That doesn't mean that Heller uh, is uh, or should be overturned, but it does uh, erode some of the sort of textualist arguments that, well, bear just means carry, and that's what everybody understood it to mean in uh, the 18th century because this new data uh, that has come up after Heller uh, seems to belie that. Uh, as to your uh, direct question, uh, I think the, the strongest argument about the unconstitutionality of New York City's regulation is that there has to be some kind of incidental rights associated with uh, the right to keep. Uh, it has to be that you have to be able to uh, take a firearm from the place of purchase or repair to your home. It has to be uh, that you have some sort of rights uh, to uh, practice with that firearm. Uh, and so in that sense, I, I kind of, uh, and this, this argument was made by 
uh, some of the amici, uh, and in, in fact, maybe by the New York, New York uh, uh, City itself in its concession, that there are some incidental rights associated with the right to keep, including transporting locked and unloaded firearms from uh, different places. And I think that's the strongest argument that this is, in fact, an, uh, an unconstitutional uh, regulation. Clark, let, let's delve into the text and, and the meaning of bear arms. So we, the people listeners, know that the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution has a wonderful feature called the drafting table, where you can see early drafts of the amendments in the revolutionary era state constitutions. And I'm just looking at a few of them right now. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 said the people have a right to keep and bear arms for the common defense. New Hampshire said no person who's conscientiously scrupulous about the lawfulness of bearing arms shall be compelled thereto, provided he will pay an equivalent. Uh, tell us, based on these revolutionary era texts, how you understand the original meaning of the phrase bear arms. Well, I certainly agree that uh, reasonable people can see it differently, but it really can depend on what sources uh, you choose to look at. Uh, another source you did not mention is the Constitution of the State of Pennsylvania, which specifically, and did at the time, uh, protect the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state. One argument that gets made here is that bearing arms really has a purely military connotation, so it really only uh, comes up in or only applies to bearing arms, you know, in military service and defense of your country. But the language in the Pennsylvania Constitution uh, undercuts that assertion because, again, it says that, that the right of the citizen to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. So there's no question that at least some uh, contemporaneous usage back uh, uh, during the relevant era uh, use the term bear arms in an individual personal self-defense uh, capacity or, or connotation. And uh, that, that is not the exclusive interpretation one could give to that terminology in the Second Amendment, but it is certainly a plausible, and I personally think uh, more than plausible, I think absolutely persuasive interpretation of bear arms, um, particularly when compared with founding era practice. You have to keep in mind how much different a role uh, firearms played during the founding era than they do now. I, I would say that it's, it's a fair uh, uh, you know, comparison or a fair description to say that uh, guns back in the founding era, the, the late 18th century, were like today's smartphones. If you were going more than about 50 or 100 feet from your house, you took it with you, and you took it with you virtually everywhere. They were so commonplace. It was just so much a part of everyday life that I think the idea that it might be the case that the government could restrict your ownership of a firearm firearm to a specific place like your home, I think that the virtually any American during the founding era would have found that flabbergasting and, and frankly kind of ridiculous given the role that firearms played in, in colonial era life. Daryl, as, as Clark says, the Pennsylvania Constitution did recognize an individual right to bear arms, as did the Vermont Constitution. I'll read that language in a second. Those were the only two. Two out of the 13 states recognized an individual right to bear arms uh, for self-defense, the, all the other 11 talked about some kind of collective right of the militia not to be displaced by an overweening federal government. Uh, and, and the Pennsylvania language, just to reinforce uh, Clark's point, is uh, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. And then the Vermont Constitution is the only other individual rights-like uh, language that says the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. What, what are we to make of that, the fact that it's two out of uh, 13 that use that individual rights language? And does that textual history cast much light about the scope of the Second Amendment today? 
Right. And I think, uh, I mean, it's an excellent question. And um, uh, Clark is right. Uh, there are some states uh, that have talk about the right to bear arms in a much more personal uh, individual rights frame. Uh, I think we have to start with what uh, Heller says uh, it's doing and what Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, said he was doing, which was he was applying an original public meaning interpretive approach to what the Constitution says. And original public meaning means we go to the sources in the, 19, uh, excuse me, the 18th century and find out what was the most common use of terms at that time, not outlier use of terms, not rare use of terms, but what was the most common use of terms? How would uh, terms be commonly understood? And that's why I think uh, this uh, new linguistic evidence that is using big data techniques to figure out what, uh, how often and frequently did the term bear arms get used in a personal individual sense as opposed to a collective or military sense is really, really um, important. Now, as I said before, there's nothing to say that some other kind of frame for constitutional interpretation, for example, uh, that things changed with uh, Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment in 1868, or some kind of living constitution approach to the Constitution can't support the idea that no matter what uh, the framers would have understood or the framing generation would have understood, the law now is that the right is personal and individual in some sense. Um, but I'm just taking Justice Scalia at his word when he says this is how you do constitutional law and originalism is about what was the most common use of these terms at the time. And you don't look at outlier uses, you look at the most common use of the terms. Well, Clark, if the Second Amendment does have an individual rights component, as Heller clearly said it does, and if it protects some right to carry guns outside the home – as uh, people on both sides seem to concede that it does, what is the scope of that right to carry outside the home? The New York law is an extreme one. It seems that no other state had such draconian carry restrictions. But how would you define the scope of the right to carry outside the home and what, if any, are its limits? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the, the scope of the right to carry outside the home is a right that is uh, enjoyed by law-abiding citizens to carry a uh, firearm, at least certain firearms. I, I think we can argue about you know fully automatic weapons later. I don't think the Supreme Court is ever going to protect those. But let's say commonly owned firearms, uh, you know, like a semi-automatic pistol, um, outside of the home uh, for lawful purposes. Now, we know, for example, from Heller, there was dicta that said that uh, the government may restrict that, uh, people's ability to carry weapons into sensitive places. Uh, so, for example, like a school building or a courthouse. Uh, but the implication um, of the Second Amendment uh, is fairly open-ended, keep and bear arms. And if the Second Amendment includes a, a kind of a self-defense uh, uh, explanation or you know a, um, a meaning, then you'd want to be able to carry uh, a, a firearm wherever you might need it to protect yourself. And just to give one example, um, think about Reconstruction era. Think about the Jim Crow era. Think about a time in our country uh, when the freedmen, uh, newly freed uh, black people who had been enslaved previously, were out there trying to enjoy their civil rights and they're being terrorized uh, by the Ku Klux Klan, for example. Is it going to be sufficient for them to have a gun at home? No, of course it's not. They're going to need to be able to have a gun wherever they go in order to protect themselves from that uh, uh, kind of uh, sudden violence and terror. Uh, and so 
Uh, and the same thing would have been true during the 18th century, but for different reasons. If you're going to go outside the home in the 18th century, there is no professional police force. You might run into a, you know, a robber, a highwayman. You might run into wild animals. You might run into Native Americans uh, with whom we are still fighting. So uh, the connotation of the Second Amendment is that people have the ability to effective self-defense, and that implies very strongly the ability to carry a firearm for, for lawful purposes uh, wherever you go, with very certain, very narrow exceptions, as alluded to by Justice Scalia in the Heller opinion. Thanks for stating that proposed rule so clearly. Daryl, in your piece, The Conservative Case for a Homebound Second Amendment, uh, you said that the historical record on public bearing of weapons is marked by ambivalence, not consensus. The consistent thread from the 18th and 20th centuries to today is disagreement about whether arms should be permitted in public and widespread regulation and even prohibition of the practice. And for that reason, you reject the conservative uh, proposal that a right to have a firearm in the home and a corollary right to bear arms incidentally for purchase, service, and use of emergency should be recognized. And you say that whether guns should be permitted outside the home is a matter for citizens to decide among themselves. Tell us more about that argument and, and also what your vision of the positive uh, Second Amendment is. Yes, absolutely. So um, I, Clark is absolutely correct that the 14th Amendment, um, which doesn't get the kind of respect that it's due in Second Amendment litigation or argument, um, is really key here. Um, before I go into that, though, I think it's fair to say that right now, uh, as far as I know, there is no uh, state in the Union where it is categorically prohibited to uh, carry a firearm. Every state in the Union has some mechanism uh, for allowing somebody to uh, obtain uh, a, a, a license to carry a firearm concealed or unconcealed. And some states have no licensing requirement at all. Uh, so the real uh, nature of the debate is not really about um, whether the Second Amendment protects uh, gun carrying outside the home, but what kind of licensing is permitted. Because right now every state through uh, its own legislatures have, have permitted some mechanism of uh, public carry. Uh, in terms of the 14th Amendment, I think it's uh, it, you know, important to sort of uh, uh, make, the, make the point, and, and as I said in the conservative case uh, for the homebound amendment, uh, there's lots of ambivalence. So the 14th Amendment makes the right far more individual. That's uh, pretty unquestionable. Uh, but it's also happening at a time of serious uh, public strife. Um, uh, the uh, argument that Clark made about uh, Friedman uh, being able to bear arms is true, um, but there's also regulations at the same time that tries to keep people uh, like the Klan, for example, from uh, claiming that they have rights uh, to bear arms as a kind of a military operation to terrorize Friedman. Uh, and so I think the, uh, the premise here is that uh, if you look uh, at the sweep of America in the, the 1800s, you have uh, some very permissive regulations uh, about guns, and you have some very, very restrictive ones, including some uh, states and territories that uh, categorically forbade uh, firearms from being carried uh, at all in, uh, in, uh, within town limits. Uh, even Tombstone, Arizona, had such a regulation. Uh, so uh, I think, um, I think the, the mixed... Uh, history means that some other kind of decisional tool is necessary 
Um, and uh, that's uh, where I think uh, so at least some deference to the considered judgment of uh, uh, the political branches is, is really necessary. Clark, I hear Daryl saying, as he just did very clearly, that uh, some deference is necessary. And therefore, uh, Justice Sotomayor in the oral argument suggested that the Second Amendment should be seen uh, like uh, the First Amendment in the sense that reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions are permissible rather than viewing a kind of dichotomy between strict scrutiny where nearly all regulations fall and more deferential scrutiny where they might pass, Justice Sotomayor suggested that you look case by case about whether the time, place, and manner restrictions are reasonable. Do you agree with that approach or not? And uh, and, and and if not, what's the alternative? Well, I think the time, place, and manner framework that Justice Sotomayor proposed is, is unhelpful in this setting because it really was designed for a much different setting. It was designed to address issues that arise, I think, rather uniquely in the context of free speech. Uh, and it's very, I think it's highly debatable. You know, you could characterize essentially any uh, infringement of constitutional rights, any restriction on liberty as just being, oh, this is just time, place, and manner, right? Because if you don't completely prohibit some kind of an activity. You could take, for example, the Supreme Court uh, trying to answer the question of whether there's a right to uh, in- intimacy with a person of the same sex. You could easily have characterized the Texas prohibition on, on gay sex as, oh, that's just a time, place, and manner restriction on the manner in which you can have personal intimacy. So I think it's in a sense, un- it's both unhelpful and kind of rhetorically stealing a base to that uh, any restriction on liberty, including a liberty to carry a gun, can just be shoved into this time, place, and manner framework with the sort of unstated assertion that, you know, kind of because even free speech is subject to some time, place, and manner restrictions, therefore it follows that any restriction of any other right is just a reasonable uh, restriction of a time, place, and manner. As I said, I think it's an unhelpful framework. And I think the real question comes down to a very simple point, and it's this. Is the Second Amendment, like other rights, like most of the other rights specifically articulated in the Bill of Rights, one that that, uh, requires the government to carry the burden of showing that any restriction on that right is truly necessary or truly advances some important public policy? That really, I think, is the crux of the issue. uh, And whether the government can or cannot make that showing should be what, what determines the answer to the constitutional challenge. So again, trying to shove the Second Amendment into different kinds of doctrinal frameworks like time, place, and manner, I think it's unhelpful um, at best. At worst, it may be trying to steal a rhetorical base. And the question really comes down to, can the government justify this law the way it has to justify other fundamental rights, or can it not? Daryl, now we're getting into the nub of the disagreement among justices like Justice Thomas, who have complained that the Second Amendment should not be treated like a second class, right? And like the First Amendment, any uh, laws that infringe on it should be subject to the closest judicial scrutiny uh, to other justices, including Justice Sotomayor, who argue for a more deferential standard of review and are willing to evaluate uh, time, place, and manner restrictions on a case-by-case basis. What test do you prefer, and how can you help our listeners understand how they should choose a standard of scrutiny? Yeah, a, a great question. And um, I, I think this is where probably Clark and I, uh, at least our sort of thoughts on this somewhat converge, which is 
I think we're both in agreement that no right is absolute um, and that some kind of questions about the Second Amendment's scope or coverage can be answered with sort of categorical rules of various kinds. Uh, so, for example, we would never say that a bank robber who used a firearm to rob a bank uh, has some sort of Second Amendment claim uh, to be able to, to use the firearm to do so. It's just categorically outside of what we would think of as Second Amendment coverage. Similarly, some kind of arms um, are uh, categorically outside uh, Second Amendment protection, uh, nuclear missiles or uh, biological warfare agents, for example. Uh, and then we might say that uh, there are some kinds of carrying that are categorically outside uh, the coverage of uh, the Second Amendment as well. And so um, there's a sort of first step uh, typically linked to some kind of historical regulation that says, are we even talking about a Second Amendment right or not? And then the real question is, after you answer that question, uh, are you allowed to go to a second step? That is, if the history is unclear, if the history is muddled, uh, if it isn't quite sure, if you're not quite sure what level of uh, analog to use, uh, for example, is uh, carrying a gun in an airplane uh, like carrying a gun on a stagecoach or on a horse. If you really can't make that kind of question, then the second step is uh, what I think uh, Clark agrees is, uh, some kind of showing on the part of the government about uh, why you are uh, uh, regulating guns in this way. Uh, in the airplane example, obviously, there's no airplanes in 1791 or 1868 uh, when the 14th Amendment is ratified, uh, but it uh, seems pretty hazardous in a com closed compartment uh, for uh, anybody to be able to carry a loaded uh, firearm. And so there has to be some sort of government showing, and this is usually where you get into the debates about the level of scrutiny. What kind of showing must the government show? Uh, how much evidence must it produce? Uh, what is the balance between uh, the, the rights interest of the gun bearer who wants to take the gun on the plane uh, and the government's interest in protecting uh, airline travel? Uh, and that's where we get into the issues uh, about uh, either time, place, or manner, or other kinds of uh, showings by the government of why they are uh, restricting uh, the carriage of firearms. So, Clark, as you hear Daryl's proposed standard, first you look for a historical analogy, and if the history doesn't clearly answer it, then you have to balance the interests of the individual against the interests of the government, and of course have to identify the standard of scrutiny. Uh, what do you think of that standard? Well, I think this is a real challenge for the Supreme Court because, generally speaking, rights that are specifically listed in the Bill of Rights are considered to be fundamental rights, and the government is generally held to a standard of strict scrutiny, meaning the government has to show that it has a compelling interest in regulating uh, the, the conduct in question and that the uh, way it has gone about uh, regulating that conduct is narrowly tailored to promote the government's compelling interest. Um, I think it's fairly clear that the Second Amendment um, uh, is uh, expressly, I'm sorry, it's, it's explicitly 
mention the text of the Constitution, so that would tend to point in the direction of strict scrutiny. But I also think the Supreme Court is very uninterested in being in the business of uh, providing the same kind of review, let's say, for, for gun regulations that it does routinely for speech regulations. So I'd be quite surprised, frankly, if the Supreme Court decided that gun regulations are subject to this highest level of constitutional scrutiny, strict scrutiny. And I would expect to see something more along the lines of some form of of what we call intermediate scrutiny, meaning that the government still has to have an important interest that is genuinely being advanced by the regulation in question, but it gets a bit more leeway uh, in in formulating those regulations than it might with something like uh, a speech regulation. So I think for a variety of reasons that that's where we are likely to shake out, regardless of whether that's the approach that would be the most faithful, uh, both to uh, constitutional text and to uh, standard Supreme Court doctrine in this area. Uh, I think it's going to be a pragmatic uh, approach that the court takes that tries to balance the court's lack of interest in, or, or, or preference not to be really significantly involved in, in shaping gun policy in this country, but also recognizing that the Second Amendment and specifically Heller's interpretation of the Second Amendment uh, is uh, a, a part of our constitutional law, just like any other right. Uh, wow. Uh, thank you for that. And dear We the People listeners, every time we have these great Second Amendment discussions, I'm struck by the fact that the constitutional disagreement between the two sides is less dramatic than I had expected. You just heard Clark Neely, one of America's leading advocates of the Second Amendment, uh, predict that the court is likely to settle on a version of intermediate scrutiny for Second Amendment rights. And just to review the wonky doctrine, because there's not much of it, intermediate scrutiny, as, as Clark just said, means that the regulation has to be substantially related to an important governmental interest. By contrast, strict scrutiny reserved for things like the First Amendment or for laws involving racial discrimination says that the law has to be necessary to achieve a compelling governmental interest. That may seem like hair splitting, but those are really significant differences in how closely the government evaluates the law in question. And Clark just said that he thinks that intermediate scrutiny will be where the court lands. Daryl, do you agree with that quite uh, interesting prediction? Um, do you think that intermediate scrutiny is the right standard? And if that's what the court's going to ultimately adopt, then what's all the fuss about? Right. Well, I think Clark, uh, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'm assuming that he's making a predictive judgment um, that uh, due to the difficulties of sorting out all the sort of empirical evidence, all the historical evidence, uh, uh, and the fact that intermediate scrutiny tends to be a kind of a uh, conventional way to address really sticky, thorny constitutional problems. I think he's just predicting that's where the, the court will land. I, I think, uh, and again, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, but uh, you know, in his defense, I think what Clark would probably agree is that the kind of intermediate scrutiny that uh, the uh, gun uh, rights uh, advocates want applied if they want intermediate scrutiny applied at all is something that's a real intermediate scrutiny uh, that requires a real showing of some kind of uh, regulations uh, and its benefits as opposed to speculation. Um, that was the key uh, uh, angle of disagreement on the merits in the briefing uh, in the NYSERPA case was uh, where was the showing that this regulation was actually going to help safety? And in fact, uh, it seems like the uh, New York City conceded that it really wasn't about uh, safety or didn't seem to have a, a good safety uh, hook to it. 
Uh, I will mention that one of the problems here is there's a disconnect between regulations that might have a historical provenance uh, and any kind of uh, data to show its efficacy. Um, so, um, uh, for example, Justice Scalia himself says in the Heller decision that presumably concealed carry can be completely prohibited, uh, that concealed carry is categorically outside of the Second Amendment scope because that's uh, a dangerous and unusual manner of carrying weapons. Uh, but there's no evidentiary uh, showing about the efficacy or not of concealed carry. Uh, and so I think to the extent that the court ends up adopting this, it will have to be blended with some kind of historical approach uh, that also looks at the history of uh, various regulations in this kind of two-part framework that has arisen in the lower courts. Clark, clarify your views about intermediate scrutiny in any ways you like, and, and then tell our listeners what kind of laws would be invalidated if the sort of intermediate scrutiny that you support uh, were applied? Thanks for that opportunity. I, I, it is important to keep in mind that I'm making a pragmatic and predictive point, uh, as Daryl notes, and not uh, you know, sort of offering a pristine or ivory tower version of, of what the Second Amendment should get. I'm saying what I think it will get. The reason I think that the Second Amendment will receive ultimately intermediate scrutiny is primarily because um, I think the Supreme Court would understand very well that virtually every gun regulation on the books today would be struck down under strict scrutiny. There's, there's, in order to survive strict scrutiny, among other things, you have to show that the regulation in question is in fact promoting a compelling government interest. And there is a vast body of empirical uh, uh, studies that demonstrate pretty conclusively that uh, gun regulations, there's, there's very little, if any, connection between gun regulations and any positive public policy outcome. So if the government, whether a state or federal government, were in a position of having to show that a particular regulation actually advances some compelling government interests like public safety, uh, virtually everybody knows they won't be able to do that. And so I think the court is just want, is going to want to avoid putting itself in that position where it's going to have to strike down virtually every gun law in the country as it would, I think, pretty clearly have to do if it chose strict scrutiny as the applicable standard. So I think that pushes the court in the direction of intermediate scrutiny. Uh, there's uh, sort of a whole subset of different sort of ways of describing what that requires, this intermediate scrutiny. But the touchstone, the touchstone for all forms of so-called heightened scrutiny, including intermediate scrutiny, is that the burden is on the government to come forward with two things, a genuine explanation of what it's trying to achieve, not some post hoc rationalization, but a genuine statement of its true end, and then at least some evidence that the regulation in question is in fact advancing that end. And that's going to be extremely difficult for the government to do, I think, with respect to many, many gun regulations. I think it'll be very difficult with respect to limitations on high-capacity magazines, on so-called assault weapons, and Perhaps the biggest sort of elephant in the room uh, are these so-called discretionary discretionary uh, permitting systems. So there's essentially two ways of getting a concealed carry permit in America today. One is the majority of states, about 38 states. It's like a driver's test or a driver's license. If you meet some set of objective statutory criteria, you get the license. But in about a half a dozen or maybe eight states, including California and New York, it's up to the complete discretion of local law enforcement. Your local police chief gets to decide on a whim whether or not you get a permit. And 
it, that's going to be very difficult to uphold. There are no other constitutional rights that I'm aware of, the exercise of which depends on the whim of a local official. And particularly when we look at how that discretion has been exercised in places, for example, like New York City. It's very difficult to get a concealed carry permit in New York City, and very few people have them. But let me tell you some of the people who do have them. Donald Trump got a concealed carry permit in New York City. His lawyer, Michael Cohen, got one. Bill Cosby got one. Howard Stern, the shock jock, got one. Art Salzberger, the former publisher of the New York Times. So um, if you have a system where you're essentially handing out concealed carry permits to celebrities, um, but virtually no one else, it's going to be very difficult to show that that permitting system uh, comports with any form of intermediate scrutiny. And if that is where the Supreme Court ends up, I think we're going to see a lot of these regulations fall by the wayside. Wow, that is a fact that uh, I didn't know about Art Salzberger and Donald Trump, that they both <laughs> share concealed carry permits from New York City. Uh, Daryl, uh, Clark just said that he believes that under intermediate scrutiny with bite, courts would ask for a genuine statement of interest and evidence that the regulation, in fact, achieved that genuine end. And he said that that would call into question high-capacity magazine guns, assault weapons bans, and discretionary permitting systems like those in New York. Uh, do you agree or disagree? And do you think that those three regulations should be sustained under a proper reading of the Second Amendment or not? Uh, I mean, it's an excellent point. And I think this is, again, where um, there might be some slippage between what we might think of as a sort of historical text history and tradition approach and uh, a scrutiny approach, because, in fact, um, the history of of licensing, the history of regulation of dangerous and unusual weapons, uh, and uh, and other kinds of um, uh, regulatory measures are very very old, um, going back in fact to the uh, pre-revolutionary uh, era uh, in England. Um, so, for example, um, uh, some states uh, required uh, good cause. Uh, Texas had a regulation, for example, that uh, required good cause for carrying. Uh, firearms um, in Tombstone, Arizona, which I mentioned before, um, uh, you had to get a license from the local sheriff if you wanted to carry uh, guns in town. And I think uh, one of the main uh, points um, that my colleague Joseph Bloker uh, wrote about on, in a piece called "Firearm Localism" is that there has always been a, a quite a stark a difference between the regulation of firearms in uh, urban areas. And as opposed to the country. Uh, so as far as tradition goes, uh, I think uh, that it's not 100% uh, clear uh, that a text history and tradition approach wouldn't actually support some of these regulations, especially uh, to the extent that they are different uh, between cities uh, and in rural areas. Uh, but even if we think about it in the uh, level of scrutiny, um, I think uh, most people have uh, intuitions that the hazards to others, the hazards uh, to life and limb of uh, innocent bystanders and things are different in crowded areas, including in dense urban areas, uh, as opposed to the country. Um, and so that there are empirical justifications for these kinds of regulations, uh, especially as between cities and, and the country. Um, so, um, you know, I think, uh, I think where probably Clark and I agree is that to the extent that it looks like, um, that the permitting system is, 
the locus of uh, just uh, uh, you know corruption or uh, rent seeking um, uh, or other kinds of um, um, uh, graft or favoritism uh, that is uh, rife for uh, reform. Uh, the real question then is: Is it supposed to be reformed through ordinary legislation or constitutional law? Thanks for that and for helping us understand that under intermediate scrutiny, people can reasonably disagree, as both of you have, about whether uh, assault weapons bans, discretionary permit systems, and other regulations on high-capacity magazines might stand or fall. Clark, help us understand what other broad categories of regulations might be challenged under intermediate scrutiny with bite, maybe beginning with uh, public carry laws uh, that are less extreme than the ones that were adopted in New York. Right. So I do think the the number one target would be these states that make it very difficult to get a permit to carry uh, a pistol outside the home. Um, and certainly a, a state that has a regime that leaves it to the whim of a local law enforcement official to decide who gets a permit and who doesn't, that's going to be very hard to defend under any form of heightened scrutiny. And I think those would go down. Um, another issue that that's kind of interesting that's been percolating somewhat is whether the Second Amendment protects other uh, weapons besides firearms. There's been a case involving pepper spray out of Massachusetts. There's one going on right now uh, with stun guns. Um, even uh, a case involving nunchucks, which is a, a, a Japanese uh, martial arts weapon out of New York. Um, but knives are a big deal. There's uh, Up until just recently, New York City had um, a, a uh, it was a crime to carry uh, basically a folding knife, the kind of knives that you see in rural America. Uh, almost every man over the age of you know 12 is carrying one in rural America. Those were illegal in New York, and they were uh, that law was enforced in a, in a highly racially disparate way, uh, where somebody might be coming home from their job, you know, uh, working at uh, as a you know uh, on a, in a theater where they have to carry a knife in order to trim uh, set designs, or they're a carpenter or something like that. And uh, basically, if a police officer could flip the, the knife open with the flick of his wrist, then it was illegal. And um, so there's another uh, – that's another issue that people don't – doesn't come to people's minds is does the Second Amendment apply to other kinds of um, uh, personal defense weapons uh, besides firearms? So there's a lot of – and then, of course, assault weapons bans are very much in the news. It's unclear whether the, the, those, those laws will be uh, increased or expanded. Um, but so if I had to had really sum up, I would say it's going to be a question of um, whether the few remaining concealed carry states that are described or on the whim of a local law enforcement officer, are those going to stand? And will a so-called assault weapons ban stand? And does the Second Amendment extend to other arms uh, besides guns? And uh, I think uh, all of those laws restricting all of those kinds of activities are going to uh, have uh, a lot of trouble surviving intermediate scrutiny. Daryl, on Clark's three points, uh, concealed carry states that are discretionary, assault weapons bans, and bans on other weapons that are not firearms, uh, how do you think that this court is likely to rule under the heightened intermediate scrutiny that the justices seem inclined to adopt? Uh, that's a great question. And I, I think with the concealed carry discretion, uh, the two-part uh, framework that I've uh, discussed before is probably the most applicable. Um, and, uh, you know, one question would be the sort of tradition uh, analysis, that is, is there a tradition of discretionary licensing? Uh, and again, I think that there is some uh, argument that uh, there is a history uh, of uh, a, a kind of discretionary licensing, at least in some uh, places in the United States historically. 
But if the court isn't going to uh, adopt the constitutionality of a discretionary licensing regime uh, under uh, a historical analysis, then I think under intermediate scrutiny, uh, it might uh, be uh, somewhat more difficult and uh, for the, the government to show uh, that uh, the special need requirement um, uh, is advancing some sort of uh, purpose um, uh, that, uh, that has to do with sort of public safety or, or, or so forth. Now, uh, it doesn't mean it's insuperable. I just think it'll be uh, more difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the arguments would be, uh, for example, that um, it's dangerous to have untrained persons there. So to the extent that the discretionary licensing system, you know, requires training or some other kind of uh, mechanism, um, I think that will be part of the calculus. As for the weapons themselves, uh, Clark has made a really good point, which is um, arms aren't just firearms. Um, and this leads to some really intriguing issues. Now, the Supreme Court in Heller uh, said that the weapons that are protected are weapons in common use. Uh, and for that reason, said that handguns, for example, are, are protected. Uh, but this leads to a huge circularity problem, which means that anything that is uh, in common use uh, uh, becomes constitutionally protected so that you have to regulate any kind of new, extremely lethal weapon uh, or hazardous weapon before people start buying it. Um, and uh, some people have tried to sort of break out of this uh, circular argument uh, by talking about, well, common use for what kind of purpose, common use for whom. Um, and I think uh, that's uh, the kind of analysis, rather than intermediate scrutiny, that the court might approach or try to work out with respect to what kind of weapons are uh, protected. The final thing I want to say about that, and you mentioned knives and things, is uh, the one unknown here is the, the rapid um, change in technology. Currently, there is no uh, pressure on the gun industry uh, really to make firearms uh, less uh, dangerous, less lethal. I mean, one of the purposes of a firearm is to be lethal, but you can imagine uh, through different kinds of technology uh, making guns uh, less receptive to uh, theft, less receptive to being used by criminals, uh, less receptive to uh, misuse by children, uh, and so forth. Um, but we really haven't tested the bounds of what that technological change would mean. And it really raises an interesting question. That is, to the extent that weapons that are safer, uh, even for the core lawful purposes of self-defense that are on the market, do they end up rendering other kinds of weapons that are less safe, therefore unprotected? And that's a really just a, an interesting issue that we might have to face in the next uh, 20 to 25 years uh, as the Second Amendment uh, doctrine develops. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating uh, debate and discussion about the scope of the Second Amendment. And Clark, the first uh, one is to you. Uh, tell our listeners why you believe that the New York law that the court is considering violates the Second Amendment if the court reaches the merits. Right. So I think it's clear that the Second Amendment or uh, uh, 
that the law in New York is inconsistent with the Second Amendment uh, for two reasons. First, because New York's lawyer conceded as much at the at the podium before the Supreme Court, conceded that it doesn't uh, advance public safety, um, and that there is some right to to transport uh, firearms outside the home. I think those concessions will ultimately uh, sink the case for New York if the court does get to the merits. I also think that's a correct interpretation of the Second Amendment uh, substantively. Um, it doesn't just say people have a right to keep arms. It says people have a right to keep and bear arms. And we don't do head counts among founding era uh, state constitutions and other documents to see what rights are and are not protected. Um, the right, the, whether you have a right of free speech or free press or the right to assemble doesn't depend on whether or not enough state constitutions happen to mention those rights. So that's not a, a mode of textual analysis that we apply in any other setting. And the Supreme Court's not going to apply uh, that highly restrictive uh, uh, a mode of analysis to the Second Amendment. I think at the end of the day, the question is going to be whether uh, the government, in any case, including the New York uh, case before the court now, has the ability to come forward with evidence to show that the particular regulation that is under consideration actually does advance some important government interest. If that becomes the new standard for the Second Amendment, and it would be a new standard because most of the lower courts have been applying a far more lenient standard that really is indistinguishable from the lowest standard of review, which is called rational basis review, if we get some form of heightened scrutiny going forward, then the volume of regulations, of gun regulations that are struck down by the courts will increase. Do I think it'll be a massive increase? I do not but purely for prudential reasons. I just don't think the courts want to be deeply involved in shaping gun policy in this country. But a larger number of gun regulations will be struck down under a more searching form of scrutiny if the Supreme Court decides to go that way in this case. And that really is uh, the most interesting thing about this case. And Daryl, the last word is to you. Tell our We the People listeners whether you believe that the New York regulation violates the Second Amendment or not. Great. Uh, well, I think I have to respond to Clark uh, because it's not just a head count, right? Again, if Scalia's approach is the right one, and I'm not saying that it is, it's really just trying to figure out what common speakers of English would have understood words to mean at the time that they were spoken. Uh, that's not a head count. That's a falsifiable, empirical statement. Um, the Constitution of the United States uses the word domestic violence. Uh, you could find one or two maybe outlier usages of domestic violence to mean um, uh, wife battery uh, at the founding era, but that's not what that term was uh, routinely used for uh, at the founding era. So it's not just a nose count, it's, it's a falsifiable empirical uh, fact. Um, uh, the issue that uh, you asked me to address directly, which is you know whether it's uh, constitutional or not, um, I'm going to um, prefer to, to what I filed uh, in the amicus case, which is um, I'm not sure how intermediate scrutiny would apply in this particular case. What I think is that if the Supreme Court is uh, going to uh, make a decision about uh, uh, an approach to the Second Amendment, it should use a fairly conventional legal analysis. That conventional legal analysis asks uh, a couple questions. The first is uh, a scope question. Are we even dealing with a, a Second Amendment matter? Uh, that's usually guided by something like his, uh, historical analysis. Uh, and then when uh, you're not certain about that answer, you go to some form of uh, scrutiny. Uh, to the extent that the plaintiffs in this case and other amici wanted something that is far more rare 
uh, and far more unsettling to the, the doctrine, which is uh, only those regulations that existed in 1791 when the Second Amendment was ratified are constitutional, and any regulations that didn't exist in 1791 are unconstitutional, uh, or you must have a close analog to the extent that that is the kind of test that um, some want uh, the court to adopt, I think that is untenable uh, and isn't applied to any constitutional right. So to the extent that the court adopts uh, such a strict text, history, and tradition test, it will be giving Second Amendment rights uh, super protection, not ordinary constitutional protection. Thank you so much. Clark Neely and Daryl Miller for a really illuminating, uh, civil and vigorous discussion of the scope and meaning of the Second Amendment. Clark, Daryl, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Homework of the week, dear We the People listeners, of course, it's the books of our two great panelists, Clark Neely's Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government, and Daryl Miller's The Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller. Dear We the People listeners, I hope you're doing your homework, and if you are, can you please write to me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and tell me what you thought of the book in question, or just tell me that you read it. It is urgently important that you continue to cultivate your faculties of reason and to educate yourself during the precious days between podcasts. Don't be idle, but continue to learn and grow. And please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who, like you, is hungry for a weekly and daily dose of constitutional learning and debate. And always remember, as the holiday seasons approach, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. Sending thanksgiving gratitude to all of you for listening and learning. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.